Hello and welcome to the Serial Talker Podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom, and today's podcast is part two of our fascinating story about Silk Road. Now, Silk Road is the dark net market that began in 2011 by Ross Ulbrich and was an underground marketplace for drugs and all kinds of other illicit shenanigans. It's a fascinating story. This is part two. Let's get right into it. Hector Xavier Monsegur was an unusual visitor to the New York FBI office. Then again, Monsegur was not really a visitor. It was past 1 a.m. one night in the spring of 2011, and he was being led to the back of the empty bullpen by Chris Tarbell, a young agent who had arrested Monsegur earlier that night in the Jacob Rees houses on the Lower East Side. Monsegur was an enormous Puerto Rican, ears studded with diamonds, who grew up in the projects. He was also Sabu, a co-founder of Lothsec, an elite group of hackers responsible for electronically attacking dozens of corporate and government targets like News Corps and the CIA. Sabu was the most high-profile member of Anonymous, the hacktivist political collective. Tarbell had managed to follow a blind lead from the FBI's public hotline to Sabu and reel him into the FBI as an informant. It was a remarkable score for Tarbell, especially since he was still a rookie. Tarbell had always had the cop in him, even when his parents thought he was going to be a doctor. In college, he was a powerlifter, an unusual sight at James Madison University, a preppy school in the Shenandoah Valley. He already looked like a cop, big, with a short quaff on top of that baby face. By the time Tarbell finished college, he sensed where policing was headed and got a master's in computer science. He didn't understand programming at first, but he did understand that this was the future, so he paced himself, stuck with it, and came out the other side as a computer forensic expert, working as a civilian for the FBI. Tarbell spent four years traveling the world with global forensics, tracking down terrorists, child pornographers, and botnets. He showed a talent for uncovering digital trails. He thought about how the virtual realm seemed like magic, a secret world, poorly understood, and like all magical realms, it was full of charlatans and practitioners of dark arts. Few could decipher those secrets, and Tarbell liked being one of them. After a few years in forensics, Tarbell told his wife, Sabrina, he wanted to officially join the Bureau. Sabrina, eight months pregnant, approved, even though it meant uprooting their lives. After Quantico, Tarbell was assigned to the New York office, home to the FBI's nascent cybercrime division. By this time, he was 31, a little old to be the new guy. But catching the elusive Sabu made Tarbell's name at the Bureau. Online, Sabu's credibility among hackers was unassailable. The FBI set him up with a new laptop in their office, where he gathered evidence against his lolsec friends. Nine months later, dozens of arrests were made, severely disabling two of the world's biggest hacker groups. After lolsec, Tarbell looked for a new big case. He took an interest in Tor, the encryption software that allowed users to visit sites such as Silk Road. 
Tor's protocol is a kind of digital invisibility cloak, hiding users and the sites they visit. Tor stands for the Onion Router and was launched by the Navy in 2002. It has since become a tool for all manner of clandestine communications, licit and illicit, from circumventing censorship in countries like China to powering contraband sites like Silk Road. Tor's encryption is so layered, agents thought it was unbreakable. When cybercrime investigations hit a Tor IP, they would give up. The supposed impossibility only attracted Tarbell. He decided to take on Tor. Tarbell briefed his supervisor, who briefed his supervisor, and so on, until they wound up in the office of the SAC, or Special Agent in Charge. Above the SAC is the Assistant Director in Charge. Yes, an endless source of amusement when complaining about red tape in the FBI is to talk about how the SAC is just below ADIC. It took a couple of sales pitches to soften up the SAC, but in February 2013, Tarbell opened the FBI's first tour case, Operation Onion Peeler. By now, Silk Road was a juicy target. Many agencies were working on it, but with no success. Homeland Security Investigations had a case open. The IRS had looked into it. There was Force's DEA case in Baltimore and the New York DEA, which asked Tarbell for technical advice. They were using traditional drug investigation techniques, but Tarbell knew this wasn't an operation where you could flip people up the chain because there was no chain. You had to go straight to the top. Ross was paddling through the break, lining up for a set. The beach at Bondi, just south of Sydney, sloped down to a gorgeous waterline. For Ross, the waves were among the many advantages of leaving Austin in late 2011 to spend some time in Australia with his older sister, Callie. He quickly made friends there, a lively group that went out drinking, invited him to warehouse parties, and met up to go surfing. Ross had worked that morning but was in the water by afternoon. It was nice, the portable life, and it was made possible by his flourishing online drug bazaar. Silk Road's usage had exploded in June of that year after a story on Gawker brought the site mainstream attention. After that, traffic grew so fast that Ross needed technical support to maintain the site, deal with transactions, and add features like automatic payments and a better feedback system. He'd been doing it all himself, learning on the fly, reprogramming automated transactions, and using Code Igniter to write and rewrite the site after a benevolent hacker alerted him to some major flaws. This is amateur shit, the hacker had said. His homespun efforts worked miraculously, but Ross lost sleep over it. To outsiders, he seemed his normal genial self, but in his digital domain, he was frazzled, trying to keep Silk Road running. All the while, he recorded in his journal the pitfalls of running a seat-of-the-pants startup. In his journal, he wrote, And yeah, that was yet another learning curve, configuring and running a LAMP server. Oh, joy! But I was loving it. Sure, it was a little crude, but it worked. 
Rewriting the site was the most stressful couple of months I've ever experienced. Early on, Ross had turned to Richard Bates, a college friend, who was now a software engineer in Austin. Bates helped Ross with basic programming and tended to crises like the site's first major outage. When Silk Road took off, Ross tried to hire Bates, but Bates already had a programming job. Have you ever thought about doing something legitimate? Bates asked Ross. Something legal? Ross wasn't really interested. Driven by the failure of his previous businesses, he was determined to make Silk Road succeed. He disappeared into his work and started professionalizing his organization. He and Julia broke up again that summer. With Silk Road in his computer, there was little to keep Ross in Austin. By the time he got to Australia, he had banked $100,000 and was earning $25,000 a month in commissions. It was time to bring in some hired guns, he wrote, to take the site to the next level. Part of the problem was that Ross was grappling with what hackers call operational security, or OPSEC. To completely seal his two identities from one another, Ross realized would require a kind of ruthless and elaborate secrecy. He appealed to Bates to stay quiet. Later, Ross told his friend that he'd sold Silk Road to a mysterious buyer. He also struggled with learning how to lie. Just before New Year's, he went on a date with a woman named Jessica. He told her, like everyone else, that he was working on a Bitcoin exchange. This alone constituted a security leak. I'm so stupid, he thought. But Ross got deep with Jessica and felt an urge to reveal himself. He lamented this feeling, the divide between intimacy and deceit. The Eagle Scout in him agonized over telling half-truths. Sitting across from Jessica, he wished he could be honest. He also wished he'd started with a better lie. But Ross did divulge the most important truth. He told her, I have secrets. When Silk Road started, its leader was something of a cipher. Users and vendors only knew that there was a system administrator who'd established the site's conceptual framework as both a drug marketplace and libertarian experiment. There was a basic ethics for that experiment. Some of Silk Road's users were purists who advocated for full transactional autonomy. If heroin, why not howitzers and human hearts? But the administrator pronounced a strict code of conduct. No child porn, stolen goods, or fake degrees. He summed it up like so. Our basic rules are to treat others as you would wish to be treated, and don't do anything to hurt or scam someone else. As time went on, the administrator became an important voice, the site's theorist and advocate for individual liberty. But ideas need a true leader. This role, Ross decided, was too important to go unnamed. Who is Silk Road? posted the administrator in February 2012 to the community. I am Silk Road, the market, the person, the enterprise, everything. I need a name. Drum roll, please, came the dramatic announcement. My new name is Dread Pirate Roberts. Everyone loves the Princess Bride, and the reference was clear immediately. Force and Tarbell, who had both seen the movie many times, got the implication as well. Plausible deniability. 
The mask, worn by successive generations of pirates, obfuscates the relationship between the man and the name. The christening of DPR was emblematic of Silk Road's secrecy. It also ignited a true cult of personality. DPR was thoughtful and at times eloquent. For believers, Silk Road was more than a black market. It was a sanctuary. For DPR, the site was a political polemic in practice. Stop funding the state with your tax dollars, DPR wrote, and direct your productive energies into the black market. DPR got more grandiose over time, writing that every transaction on Silk Road was a step towards universal freedom. In a way, Silk Road was the logical extension of the libertarian view that animates much of the Internet, not to mention the rising political tide in Washington. It was Silicon Valley in extremis, a disruptive technology wrapped in political rhetoric. DPR was its philosopher king, envisioning a post-state digital economy, with Silk Road as the first step toward a libertarian paradise. Not only was Silk Road a slap in the face to law enforcement, it was a direct challenge, as DPR wrote, to the very structure of power. All the more reason, of course, why the government wanted to shut it down. Ross had been flattered by the sudden media attention in June 2011. But when U.S. Senator Charles Schumer called a press conference to denounce Silk Road, he was alarmed. The U.S. government, my main enemy, he wrote, was aware of me and calling for my destruction. Force wrote an email. April 2012, Knob Business Proposal. Mr. Silk Road, I am a great admirer of your work. Brilliant. Utterly brilliant. I will keep this short and to the point. I want to buy the site. I've been in the business for over 20 years. Silk Road is the future of trafficking. Sincerely, E. Force wrote this message from one of two government laptops he was issued for his undercover mission on Silk Road. They were Dells, silver and clunky, with shitty batteries, so the DEA agent had to keep them plugged in, usually in the seclusion of the guest room of his house in the Baltimore suburbs. That was also the favorite room of Pablo, Force's cat, who would sit on the bed watching him in his chair and ottoman as he took to the keys posing as a high-rolling international drug smuggler. He had constructed an elaborate identity, Eladio Guzman, a cartel operative based in the Dominican Republic whose bread and butter was moving mid-sized shipments of heroin and cocaine. For Guzman's Silk Road screen name, Force chose Nob, after the biblical city where David obtains the sword of Goliath. Oh, and the Guzman character was blind in one eye so Force put on a hoodie and an eye patch and had his 10-year-old daughter take his profile picture. In the photo, Force, a.k.a. Guzman, a.k.a. Knob, held up a sign, All Hail Knob. Force knew how to put together a backstory from his years in undercover. As a young agent, he'd been on the front lines of the drug war. He grew out his hair, put bronze hoops in his ear, and inked a huge tribal piece on his back. He said he worked in construction while looking for leads in down-and-out bars, like the Purple Pig Pub in Alamosa, Colorado, the gateway to the Great Sand Dunes, and also the gateway to the Rocky Mountain Route for Mexican meth.
putting himself in the mindset of a smuggler. Force saw Silk Road's strength as communications and distribution, hence his big opening gambit. For Gooseman, Silk Road offered the opportunity for covert vertical integration from wholesale to retail. Force hoped he'd get a quick response, and he did. The day after Knob's proposal, Dread Pirate Roberts wrote, I'm open to the idea. What did you have in mind? Tarbell was at work on the 23rd floor of the New York FBI office, early as usual. He was the kind of guy who wanted to be first in the office. Always had been, ever since college, when he started organizing his whole life on spreadsheets. Tarbell and Sabrina's first date is still on an Excel worksheet somewhere, as is everything that's happened since. Calendar, bills, weight goals, daily run. Tarbell's father-in-law, a longtime Marine, thought Tarbell was the most regimented person he'd ever met. Tarbell set his alarm for 4.30 a.m., hit the gym by 5, and was showered and seated at his desk by 7 a.m. sharp. Tarbell and his fellow cybercops occupied a couple dozen spots toward the back of the bullpen, fanned out around a core group of desks called the pit. This was prime real estate, where the cool kids among the FBI's computer clique sat. When Tarbell started, he was sitting two desks and an aisle away, way over by the windows. But during the Lull's sec investigation, a coveted desk opened up, and he leapfrogged right into the center of the pit. Tarbell liked his new colleagues, especially Ilwan Yum. As a kid, Yum moved from Korea to Long Island, where he got into video games and later learned about networking and packets from playing competitively in college. Yum would become vital to the Silk Road case because he was the squad's Bitcoin specialist. He'd gone to the first Bitcoin conference in August 2011 in New York. From a law enforcement perspective, Bitcoin screamed money laundering. But technologically, Yum thought the protocol was simply beautiful. Across from Yum was Tom Kiernan. He'd been in the pit the longest, 17 years, nearly since the DOS era, when he started at the Bureau as a civilian tech support guy, responding when agents' printers stopped working. Kiernan just understood machines, backward and forward, and became the spine of the cyber squad. He'd seen every case and knew all, like the pit's very own oracle, just the guy Tarbell needed to help probe Silk Road's defenses. Tor was a vexing problem. Tarbell thought it had benefits, but he also believed that all technologies could have their purposes corrupted. In a criminal context, as with Silk Road, Tor made classical law enforcement, knocking on doors, interviewing witnesses, making deals, nearly useless. Sure, you might start to piece together the network or get closer to DPR, but you'd still only have usernames. This was not a people case, Tarbell thought. This was a computer case. The path to DPR was through his server. Finding it was a fearsome technical challenge. Out of 1.5 billion computers in the world, Tarbell started to think about just one machine, day after day. It could be anywhere. He was looking for a nanowire in a haystack. Oh man, I'm loving this. This is the end of part two 
of our multi-part series about Silk Road, Dread Pirate Roberts. That's brilliant. And you can slowly see how diabolical DPR is getting. It's always intriguing to me to see how the police have to outsmart the opponent and be really conniving and sneaky to infiltrate these criminal syndicates. There's going to be at least two more parts, so stay tuned for this weekly podcast. This is The Serial Talker. Thanks always for joining, and if this podcast is something that you're interested in, by all means, please consider subscribing. And if you would like to support the podcast, you could always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description of this podcast. And if you have a compelling true story that you would like me to consider reading, please send me an email. Those details are also in the description. Thanks always, guys. Coming up next will be part three of this riveting story about the history and the takedown of Silk Road, the marketplace on the dark web. Ciao for now. Bye.